0: welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm joined today by Scott Johnston. He is a Wall Street veteran, tech entrepreneur, and he's also the author of Campus Land, which made it to number 15 on the New York Times bestseller list and number one on its humorous books chart. And he was also the beneficiary of a really nice review from Chris Buckley. Welcome aboard, Scott.
1: Good morning. Glad to be here.
0: Well, we're here hunkered down with the coronavirus distancing. And as we've sort of looked through a bunch of different topics. One of the things that your book came across was some of the real strangeness that's been occurring on campuses lately. And we've seen with a lot of current events with coronavirus and sort of the need for campuses to get their students off so that they don't infect each other. It's sort of brought to my mind an idea that it might be a good idea to talk to you about the state of campuses generally and to see where we're going to be going. Maybe to get back to your book for a second, what did you see on campuses before the virus hit that you thought was such good material to write about?
1: I'm not a novelist by trade, and it never honestly occurred to me to write a novel, except a couple things happened. The first was I went to a conference on the future of free speech at Yale three or four years ago. And mind you, it wasn't sponsored by Yale. It just happened to be at Yale. Yale wouldn't sponsor such a thing these days. And 200 students besieged the conference and tried to physically shut it down. And as I was walking out through a, this phalanx of sign-carrying, screaming college students, I'd been fully aware of the developing situation of wokeness for some time. And I wondered why none of the novelists out there, none of the Chris Buckleys or Tom Wolfe's had used this milieu to write a great satiric novel. It didn't occur to me at the time that I should be the one to write it. And then Tom Wolfe subsequently died, unfortunately. But then fast forward to my college reunion, which was also at Yale, and I was holding a door open for an undergraduate and she stopped dead in her tracks and refused to go through the door and accused me of patriarchy for holding the door. And essentially at that moment, I said, I'm going to figure out how to write a novel.
0: It's amazing how one little incident like that can just sort of flip a switch in your mind and you say, okay, that's it. I'm going forward on things. When I wrote my book on wealth management, it was essentially an idea like that. I'd spoken to a really good friend of mine and she was – saying, well, you know, I, I'm having trouble dealing with my finances and I, you know, I, my marriage is, I'm not married, I'm trying to get that figured out. And I basically came to the conclusion where I asked her the question, how much do you cost? <laughs> and that wasn't well received, but I thought to myself, that's the question that people need to hear. And ultimately that's what drove me to put 300 pages down on paper and get it done and all that. So you've got the resolve to write the book talk about that process a little bit. How did you go from saying, okay, I've got a theme that needs discussing to developing a plot around that? And then ultimately, how did you find a publisher for it?
1: I knew I could write in the sense that I've always been able to write a good sentence and maybe a good paragraph or a good article or letter to an editor. I've I've written some op-ed pieces for the places like the New York Post in the past. But writing a novel is an entirely different beast and it has its own conventions and You know, you need plots and subplots, and they need to sort of wind around each other and resolve together all at once at the end. And it's a much more complex affair. And I just Googled, how do you write a novel? And there's lots of advice out there. I think I ignored most of it. I remember one bit of advice that I thought was really good was, of all the endings you can think of, choose the one that's the most outrageous and yet still plausible. I kind of embraced that. So I just kind of plowed through it, and I didn't have the whole thing mapped out. I tried. I tried to do the whole file card thing where chapter one is a file card. The whole thing would be plotted out for me, and I would just have to follow my file cards. I failed miserably at that. I just couldn't get my – it was too complex. I could not think my way all the way through all the permutations in advance. So I kind of just went at it. Once I invented some characters, they took me places. And along the way, you know, you don't really know if you're doing a good job or not because I was making myself laugh. Campus Land is intended to be very funny and yet have a message at the same time, but you have no idea if you're doing a good job. So you send out a draft to a few friends and they tell you it's wonderful, but they're your friends, so of course they're going to tell you that. So I really <laughs> wasn't sure, but I had a feeling it might be good. So then how do you find a publisher? Well, I got this great big book, How to Get Your Book Published. And what's very clear is you have to find an agent because the publishers will not accept stuff directly. So you need an agent and it could take forever to find it could take a year to find an agent if you find one. And then it could take them a year to find a publisher if they find one. And if as a new author of fiction, you have about a one in a thousand chance of all this happening. And then the publisher, if they choose to publish it, could take a year and a half to get it to market. Well, this is pretty daunting. Being a bit of a nerd, I made a spreadsheet of possible agents. You're supposed to go to each agency online and look at all the individual agents and choose one and only one to send what's called a query letter to, which is a one-page letter that says who you are and what your book's about. and Hopefully they want to take a look at a few chapters. Well, all the agents, it seems like every one of them was looking for LGBT memoirs. These weren't necessarily my people. And I did send it to one person that I, would, I just met locally, a woman I just coincidentally met who was an agent. She's literally the only person I knew like that. And a couple of weeks later, I got back an email and she said, I don't think I want to read this. So I was about to blast out to 40 different agents when it occurred to me I did know one person from college in the publishing industry who was at St Martin's Press and she's a senior editor there and so I sent her a draft and I wasn't even asking her to read it I was just hoping she'd maybe send me towards an agent who would be sympathetic towards something like campus land and I think 2 weeks later St Martin's Press bought it so I was able to circumvent the whole agent thing and speed the whole process up which was delightful
0: and probably vital in terms of getting it done. As you said, I mean, you went from, in a way, sort of, let's call it a few months to what could have been two to three to five years to never if you have to
1: go through the normal route. Which had me concerned because I was trying to capture a cultural moment. And so Tom Wolfe, for instance, brilliantly captured a cultural moment in Bonfire of the Vanities. I mean, that was the definitive book of the 80s. And St. Martin's did tell me it would take 15 months to get it to market, and it got to market this fall. And I did not realize that was going to be the case, and that's just the way they work. And I was somewhat concerned. I expressed my concern. I said, Look, the culture on college campuses is moving so fast that I fear that a lot of stuff in my book will be dated in 15 months. And I'll give you one example of how quickly things change. I was trying to decide, the villain in my book is the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at a college called Devon University, which is, think of it as an Ivy League university, mostly modeled on Yale. And I was trying to decide how many people to put in her department in the book. And I started with 20. And then I thought, you know, this is satirical. So I can exaggerate. That's the whole idea. Let's go with 30. I thought that was maybe a reasonable exaggeration. And I did go on the Harvard and Yale websites and try to figure out how many diversocrats, as I call them, worked at those schools. And I could not find that information out, probably not coincidentally. I did find out the real number at Yale right around when the book came out this fall. And the real number is 150, Wow, which blew me away. Now, if I'd put that in the novel people have said, come on, that's ridiculous. You go too far, sir. And that was one of the challenges in writing this. How do you satirize something that's already very self-satirical?
0: Well, and also I think from the timing of the release, you kind of got it in under the gun. I think the not to put too much of a splint on the virus and its impacts on higher education, but I think the notion that online education and these campuses sending people home I think that's going to have a significant impact on campus life. So the fact that you're able to kind of get your point across ahead of that before it happened, I think is a little bit of good luck too. I agree. Just one more quick question on the writing process, and then we'll get back to some of these campus discussions. You're signed up with St. Martin Press, and you've expressed that you want to get this thing out. They want to get it out, but they have their own calendar. How did the editing process go? You had a draft that was, I'm sure, of some really good quality, St. Martin's Press has sort of what it wants to see in a draft and their people. How did that work?
1: I was somewhat surprised because I had all these expectations that an editor would come in and say, you've got to get rid of that character and get rid of that chapter and everything else. The final version of Campus Land is little changed from my first draft. There are two editors. My main editor went through and made suggestions here and there, like maybe you're missing the opportunity for a little joke here or Maybe this might be a more fun word to use in this case. Very gentle stuff and all in the form of suggestions. The one major change, really, in the book that came about from my editor's suggestion was there's a character called Lulu Harris. She's the one, the straw that stirs the drink and shakes things up at Devon. And she's a New York socialite wannabe who turns into a fake feminist and stages a big daily protest that turns into a cultural moment. And my editor was in love with that character and she said she wanted to find out what came of her so i added an epilogue just so we know what happens to lulu a couple of years later so that was one the one major change and then you have something called a copy editor and they're the like the semicolon nazis they go through and examine every word and make sure it's is that a proper noun should it be capitalized Is that a proper use of a semicolon? That's not substantive changes to the book in the sense of the narrative. It's more like just making it correct English. And I had some back and forths with that person. Very interesting subspecies, by the way, copy editors. They all work from home because they all smoke and they're almost all women. And it takes a very specific kind of person to be a copy editor.
0: (laughs) When I went through the process on my book, first of all, I was thankful that people like that existed because I just don't have that in my mindset. I feel like I'm pretty good with my grammar, but I mean, they would get hyper-technical on things and I'd say, well, I don't know. And and they go, nope, absolutely not. And I go, you know what? I'm not fighting you on this one. I don't have the energy, bandwidth, or frankly, interest, but if this is what right looks like, then I'll take it.
1: (laughs) I actually found it a very interesting
0: process, and I won a couple of battles with my copy editor. Stupid aside, but I think I was also scorched, too, because having gone through law school, you go through this process called blue booking, which is a whole different set of format rules in order to make your briefs correct. And if you're wrong, you get whipped and things like that. And I just said, you know what, this is not a good use of my life force. (laughs) So, very happy to delegate the copy editing to someone who likes it and is good at it. (laughs) Oh, not for me anyway. So, campus land, you see an environment on college campuses, generally speaking, and it creates a interesting climate with which to write about and to drop characters in and which to operate. What are you seeing in a general term of the college campuses and where did it start to go wrong, do you think? I think the American educational system is widely held up as probably the top in the world in many different respects and it has gone from a place where it seems like a lot of people are able to use it to get either a good liberal arts grounding or a terrific technical grounding and now it's kind of gone into a sort of a postmodern or deconstructionist bent and it's turned a lot of things on its head. Where did you see things going wrong and how did you take stock of that?
1: It is interesting how often I've been asked that, like, when did all this PC nonsense start and why? And there is no simple answer to that. And I don't have a simple answer to it, but I can date it to the 80s for sure. And I would say it was probably when the first baby boomers started entering the professoriate. I'm pointing the finger at them. I'm one of them. I graduated in the early 80s and I saw the first sort of shots over the bow. When I was in college, but nothing like today. I actually tell people if you're even two years out of date with what you know about college culture, you have no idea what's really going on. It's funny
0: because I talk to people, especially younger people entering the workforce, and I tell them the story that I was probably the last person to graduate from college without an email address. So I graduated in '95, and I'd always been interested in computers, but somehow that missed me in college and. I just muse going back to what college might have been like had I had the internet available to me, email addresses, and communicating differently. But it didn't feel like to me that the PC component was extremely significant in my college experience. Maybe I shielded myself from it. Is there something that happened in the 90s? Was it sort of the proliferation of information on the internet or different ways of communicating that may have thrust these things forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's social media during the offs, that was fuel on the fire. That enabled a small number of voices to become extremely loud and intimidating, particularly through things like Twitter. I mean, you see it today. You see very small numbers of people affecting enormous change, mostly for the worse through vehicles like Twitter. So that plays a role in campus land, for sure. Social media has its good points. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it, you know it's a double-edged sword and the campus left has used it to full advantage. I mean, for example, that conference I went to on free speech, apparently those 200 people were rallied from no knowledge that the conference was even taking place to 200 of them showing up with signs made all within the space of about an hour and a half. They were rallied through social media.
0: So Campus Land does a lot in terms of trying to address identity politics and the importance of identity for a lot of people as they mature, certainly through college, but then ultimately as they start to auger a little bit of power within the campus community. Maybe talk a little bit about that and where did you see that in your research And I guess with where our political structure is now, where identity politics are so important in terms of getting some sort of following and getting a foothold into sort of a larger set of power, where did you see identity politics start to pop up first?
1: Oh, it probably dates back to the 80s, but it only became an obsession with the left in the last 10 years or so. And one more anecdote that illustrates how quickly it's moving and why I was concerned about waiting 15 months to get the book to market there is a scene in the book where my protagonist, who is an English professor, he encounters another professor who is self-described as pan-gender, and he's not really sure what that is. So he goes and uses Google and does a little research on gender identity, and he discovers that on Facebook, for instance, there are 58 different genders you can choose from including some very strange ones like Demi Boy and Two Spirit. And I mean, this is all true. And there were 58 when I wrote it. When the book came out this fall, I went back onto Facebook just to see where things stood. And they were up to 71. So there are literally faceless, nameless forces out there conjuring up new nuanced gender identities every week, practically. So it is... All the left thinks about, not just gender, but obviously race. And it's what animates the left in politics and on campus right now.
0: One of the things that I think is different, even from back when I was going to college and probably back from when you were as well, is that the numbers game in terms of admission into college has become much more stark. The admissions rates have gone way, way down. The tuitions have gone way, way up. Against that backdrop, you have people who are competing in an ultra-fierce environment, theoretically, for their futures. And how did you see that informing your characters in the book?
1: Well, Devon is essentially a stand-in for an Ivy League college and has a, I think it's a 5.2% admissions rate. Interestingly, the Ivies just announced admissions a couple days ago. And for the first time in many, many, many years their admissions rates actually inched up a little bit. Not a lot, but a bit. And I think it's the start of a trend. I really do. There are various reasons why admissions rates have gone down for years. I mean, the demand has been driven up by demographics. something called the echo boom. Endless student loans provided by the U.S. government and also university outreach to the poor and minorities and also foreigners. So... This created an enormous multi-decade increase in demand for U.S. colleges. And, of course, the supply was fixed. You can't really snap your fingers and create a new university, although a friend of mine is trying to do just that. And so you had growing demand and fixed supply for decades. And this drove the numbers way down, and it caused tuitions to go way the heck up. And the more the U.S. government loaned, the more colleges would just raise their tuitions. And you know, because one law of economics is if you fund something, you get more of it. So in this case, you're getting more tuition. So this obviously wasn't sustainable. And I think the dam is about to burst. I think this virus is going to accelerate it dramatically. And the supply is going to change because of online learning. When I mean, you have this model where a Yale has been saying essentially for a couple of centuries that what we do is a perfect model for 5,000 students, but not 5,001 students. Well, that's ridiculous. As courses go online, you know, the Yale education can be made available for free or close to free to an unlimited number of people. It's not quite the same learning online, but is going to campus for four years worth 250 to $300,000? A growing number of people are realizing that if I'm paying that kind of money, well, maybe maybe it's worth it if I get a degree from a top place and it's a STEM degree that has practical uses. But if I'm majoring in oppression studies and partying for four years, I mean, parents are going to say, well, "What the heck?" So I think a lot more people are realizing that the time is going to be better spent either learning online or not going to college at all, and just spending four years in the workforce making money, so you're way ahead on that count, and learning about growing a business or whatever it is you go into. So that's my little spiel about how the dam is about to burst, and we're going to see a wave of college bankruptcies over the next 10 to 15 years, and it will start with smaller liberal arts colleges, the ones that have turned themselves into identity politics and oppression studies factories. And the Harvard's and Yale's will tough this out. Yale's got $30 billion and Harvard has $40 billion. Then they've got great brands. They'll tough it out. But the Ohio Wesleyans and the Bates colleges of the world, and sorry, I don't mean to pick on those two, but the small liberal arts colleges of the world are really in for a tough time here.
0: One of the other sort of touchstones that I think is interesting was the admission scandal, where people were paying $500,000 to try to have their kids essentially jump the line and get into USC and other places. And that's something that only recently came out. And I almost kind of wish that that had somehow found its way into your book. But again, timing is what it is on these things. Any comments on that? Is that more of a symptom or is there something else going on there that's informing what's happening on these campuses?
1: Well, that happened after my book was already in the can. It didn't surprise me, honestly. Although one wonders why they didn't just make donations directly to the colleges. I would think a half million dollars would secure you a place at USC. In my day, USC was really easy to get into. I guess it's harder now. But the Ivy numbers are considerably bigger. I mean, you can buy your way into any college. And there's a rationale for that. Colleges need money to give scholarships and things. So... If someone comes to your door and says, I'll give you $10 million for my kid to get into college, you know, it's probably a good trade for the college. But the number at Harvard and Yale right now, I'm told, is 10 to $20 million if you want to sort of buy your kid in. And, and your kid ought to better have at least a B minus average too. Even a million dollars doesn't get your kid in. A million dollars will get your application read twice. They put a little sticker on it and they'll give it a second look if you give a million dollars. And I know all these alums who stress out whether to give 10000 or 20000 or $30,000. Irrelevant. <laughs> they have a kid coming up who's a high school senior or something. I'm like, You're wasting your time. Just don't write it. Frankly, I'm telling everybody who'll listen, stop giving money to these colleges. I mean, if you're a conservative, you're giving money to people who hate everything you stand for. And we'll use the money in ways that you absolutely despise. So we have to stop giving money. And it was hard. You know, I gave money to Yale for years and years because I had a great experience there and I still love the place, but I hate what it's become. And I had to almost force myself to stop writing checks.
0: So, as an alumni who's dissatisfied with the campus, I mean, first of all, I think you have to, as you said, if you're two years removed from the college experience, you really probably don't have any idea what's going on. But if you're an alumni who's reading about what's happening on campus, either from certainly the left perspective or the right perspective or whatever you're unhappy with, what are your options in terms of letting your opinion be known in a way that's going to happen? Are you stuck with just not donating and kind of letting that roll over for a bunch of different years and hopefully that has an impact? Or are there different ways to voice your displeasure?
1: Well, my approach was to write a book about it <laughs> that people would hopefully read and take something from it. And Yale, even if the guys who give $10,000 like me or I used to disappear, Yale and Harvard have long been able to rely on people who write 100 and $200 million checks. Now, one of those people is Charles Johnson, the big money manager who gave Yale a $250 million check as a down payment towards building the two new residential colleges which if you're in New Haven anytime are absolutely magnificent. I mean, you didn't know structures like this could still be built. I mean, incredible that students get to live in them. And Charles Johnson's a very well-known conservative. So, someone I know knows him and sent him a copy of Campus Land. And I hope he reads it. I've been hearing through the grapevine he and others are having second thoughts about these big checks they're writing. So, but what can a normal person do? Not much, really. I mean, there are some schools that have outlets. For instance, at Princeton, you can give, there's a professor there named Robbie George, who's tenured and a conservative and a brilliant man. And he has a group called the Madison Institute, I think it is. And you can give money to that, and it upholds good conservative values on campus, which is rare. And that actually counts as a donation towards Princeton. Yale has something called the William F. Buckley Society, which... You can give to them, but it does not count as a contribution to Yale. And it sort of operates at and around Yale, but it's not officially sanctioned by Yale. So honestly, there's not a heck of a lot you can do other than get yourself up the curve and understand what's happening and stop writing checks if any of this upsets you. Send your There's so many other worthy things to give money to. Send it there. And we have to re- evaluate whether it's really important for us, for our kids to go to these schools. There's that brand obsession with the Ivies. But what's happening at the Ivy League schools is frankly awful. So I don't have a simple answer to that. It's my short answer.
0: As we conclude here, we talked about the closure of smaller liberal arts schools and that you know the Ivy Leagues in particular, given the size of their endowments and their branding, are going to be able to have the resources to evolve. But what does shutting down a university look like, do you think? I made a prediction probably Two years ago, that, and this was more in a municipal bond and sort of bond raising context, that there were going to be liberal arts closures for a lot of the reasons you discussed. The value of the degree was going to be so low that people were not going to be willing to pay the $70,000 a year to attend. And those schools that didn't have the endowments to stick it out weren't going to make it. And so a lot of the different liberal arts schools that you may not have heard of that are across the country were going to have trouble surviving, even though they do have a really good function in educating people. When a closure like that may happen, what do you think that's going to look like? And are we really looking for a big sea change here?
1: Yes, I think what will happen is that some entrepreneurs will figure out a way to repurpose a number of universities into senior living facilities. They're beautiful places, right? They're some of the most beautiful places in America. We all have nostalgia for our time in college. They have all the facilities, which you'd have to tweak for sure, but you could even sort of make it like going back to college where you have some professors and residents who give courses. And I think that's what you do with some of these campuses that are going to become available. There are already a couple minor colleges that have gone out of business, but it will accelerate. A lot of colleges, small liberal colleges have endowments in the sort of 300 million to billion dollar range. And those endowments just got whacked by at least a quarter in the last month, and all the people who write the checks saw their net worths whacked by at least a quarter, this is really, really going to accelerate this process.
0: Before we end again, a question just popped up in my mind. We've really looked at sort of leftist politics as being one of the drivers of campus politics. We haven't really talked a lot about right-wing or conservative politics, and they are in the vast minority on most college campuses. Are there any areas where those values have taken over a college campus, and do we have the same set of conditions only on the other side? Does that exist anywhere?
1: No, not really. I mean, there is a college called Hillsdale in Michigan, which is devoted to constitutional learning. There's no equivalent of wokeness on the right. It's not a thing. It, it never can be. I mean, you cannot be a conservative and behave in that way, because it's. if you did, it wouldn't be conservative. It would be something else. So conservatives on campuses around the country, I mean, I had a son go through college, uh, graduated last spring, and they all learn to keep their heads low and their opinions to themselves which is really really sad if you think about it they do not speak up in class or if they do they don't say what they really think because they've learned they've learned they get punished for it and liberal professors in my day i mean yale was almost 100 percent liberal professors when i was there but they were reasonable people who didn't punish you for your views and actually welcomed opposing views in class that has changed That's uh, one of the big things to punish now so they all shut up, and sometimes they have things they do on the side, like the William F. Buckley Society at Yale, but they don't express views in class, and they learn not to express their views to their fellow students, lest they be severely ostracized. So it's a pretty sad state of affairs. So to
0: conclude, Campus Land, we can find that on Amazon and where most books are sold. How else do we keep track of what's going on with you, Scott?
1: I have a Twitter handle, at S. Johnston60. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I have a blog to which I occasionally submit something called The Naked Dollar, and you know, I'm working on a new novel. Oh, are you allowed to talk about that, or are you sworn to secrecy? No, no. The nice people at St. Martin's Press were very happy with the first one, so they want to see another. And so it's not coming quite as easily as the first one, but I was casting about for, if you think of campus land as trying to puncture this bubble of ideological smugness that our colleges have become, I was looking around for another sort of ideological bubble of smugness that I could puncture and settle on the world of contemporary art, which I think is somewhat of a farce. So I would describe this new book as the mob meets the world of contemporary art.
0: Excellent. Well, I will be looking forward to reading that. And again, enjoyed Campus Land a lot. Really funny. I encourage listeners to give it a look. It goes after a lot of different sacred cows, and it has a lot of fun doing it. Thanks again, Scott, for coming on.
1: Thanks, Fraser.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time
1: on Wealth Actually.